Well, it's happened again. You're putting together an estimate for a project that's basically your company's bread and butter. The scope is kind of like Julie's e-commerce project from last August, but it has a bigger group of really vocal stakeholders, kind of like Divya's Voice of the Customer project from last April. It's as risky as Fernando's last project, that one went 150% over budget, but we've learned our lessons from that, probably. In other words, you're dealing with another unique snowflake that can't be estimated using other unique snowflakes. Sound familiar? If you're on a path towards data-driven estimation, but you're struggling to get people to see project estimates the same way, keep listening. We're going to be talking about the qualitative side of data-driven estimation, and we're going to get really tactical about how you can build a culture of estimation to avoid these unique snowflake situations. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Galen Lowe with the Digital Project Manager. We are a community of digital professionals on a mission to help each other get skilled, get confident, and get connected so that we can deliver projects better. If you want to hear more about that, head over to thedigitalprojectmanager.com. Hey everyone, thanks for hanging out with us on the DPM Podcast. My guest today is someone who is absolutely obsessed with project estimation. After watching countless hours being spent creating estimates that are never accurate, he took up the entrepreneurial mantle to try to crack the nut on how to produce well-informed estimates with as little resource investment as possible. Today, he is the CEO of Parakeeto, a tool that makes sense of historical data to help produce estimates for agencies and in-house teams alike. With what spare time he has, he still manages to coach CrossFit and has gone on hiking, biking, and camping excursions with his fiance. Folks, please welcome Mr. Marcel Petipa. Hello, Marcel. Hey, Galen. How you doing, man? Not so bad. Thanks for being on the show. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. What a what a great introduction. Hopefully, I can uh, live up to the hype here. <laughs> Hopefully, it was all true. <laughs> yeah, all accurate. No. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Uh, Marcel, you. I've really enjoyed our chats. I've really enjoyed to get to know you. Um, and my takeaway has been that you are someone who is entirely on a mission to figure out estimation, which I think is a really noble cause considering how many people struggle with it. Uh, your business, Parakeeto, it offers consulting services. Uh, it has its own data-driven estimation platform. It's growing rapidly. Meanwhile, you still seem to have time to connect with like-minded folks in your network, like myself. Uh, you still run the conference circuit, and you still offer individual coaching. So I'm just wondering, where do you get your energy from? What, what drives you? <laughs> <laughs> I get my energy mostly from sleep. I do a lot of it. Uh, I, I make sure I get my eight, sometimes nine hours a night. Uh, thankfully, my fiance is on board with that game plan. So uh, that's where I get it from that and CrossFit, you know, and just staying active. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Like the motivation for this is really it's we're focused on estimation right now. But the bigger problem is like agencies, especially small agencies that don't have access to the same resources that big multinationals do really struggle to make a profit and to understand mm -hmm. like what's happening in their business. And, you know, the reason we started focusing so much on estimation was because that's at the foundation of that problem. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the root of all the symptoms that a lot of people are feeling, even though they don't often realize that. And that's what we've discovered through the, you know, the years of consulting that we've done around this problem space. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's a big, hairy, difficult problem to solve. And, um, I think I've realized that like I need I need things to work on. Otherwise, I'm a person that gets very bored very quickly. So uh, <laughs> thankfully, I found this really nice problem to sink my teeth into and, you know, <laughs> spent several years on it. And we're still not even close to cracking, you know, that whole problem space wide open. So I'm sure there's many, many years to come of me continuing to invest in this. Yeah, and I'm serious about the whole taking up the mantle thing because I think that's what a lot of people find. They're like, oh my gosh, I wish I could just dedicate all my time to thinking about estimation and even then it would still take me a decade to figure it out. And you're like, 
Hold my beer. I got this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I uh, love that. Uh, inside and outside of work, is there anything specific that you're trying to get better at these days? What's on your sort of self-improvement bucket list? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think just being present is always something that I'm, I'm struggling with. And there's been an ebb and flow to that, I think, uh, throughout my life. But it's funny, the older you get, the wiser you get, and the more you realize how fleeting moments are. And, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, and as somebody who, you know, works a lot, you, you tend to kind of always be thinking about the next thing. You kind of tend to always be planning, um, especially as somebody who has been unorganized for the majority of like my life growing up and then had to learn how to be a very organized person. Like you then start to always be in planning mode all the time. You're always mm -hmm. assessing what's coming next. Um, but then there's moments like when you're sitting at the table, Christmas dinner with your family in the middle of a pandemic thinking like, this might be the last time I see them for a year. And you're having this existential crisis of like, I'm in this moment trying to appreciate it. And yet I'm viscerally aware of how fleeting it is. And I'm actually mm -hmm. like experiencing it go by and already be like every moment is becoming a moment of the past. So um, just trying to reconcile that with myself and really learning to value the little things and try to turn my brain off and be present. That's probably the, the biggest struggle for me and the thing that I'm always trying to improve. I think that's a good one as well, for sure. <laughs> For sure. Oh, I love I'm that. sure all the PMs listening to this can uh, can associate to that feeling. <laughs> yeah, always like, feeling like you're planning for the future, always trying to figure out what's happening next. Why am I thinking about this milestone while I'm at Christmas dinner? <laughs> Just be present, guys. Just be present. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's get into it. Let's, let's talk about data-driven estimation and your take on how organizations can stop throwing so much of their most senior people's time into this seemingly moot exercise of creating a project estimate. Um, but I thought maybe let's, let's, let's talk about sort of the, the origin story a little bit. Um, tell me, how did you become so interested in estimation to begin with? Yeah. So, I mean, it started with a fascination with why it was so hard for small agencies and service businesses to answer simple questions about their business without wasting a ton of time in spreadsheets. You know, things that as an agency owner or an executive or an operations manager, or even a project manager, you're asking yourself. Um, and like, they're just, you can't answer the question without going and pulling data from a whole bunch of different places. Like, did we make money on this project? Simple mm -hmm. question. One you should have the answer to. Most people listening probably can't easily answer that question in, in a couple of minutes same thing with like do we have the capacity to take on this new project do we need to hire people if so when um you know what what does our utilization look like what, what was our profitability what services are more profitable than others what clients are more profitable than others like all these questions require um, a ton of data crunching in spreadsheets if you're a small agency because the tooling that's out there is just so it's sparse and you have this data spread out across several different places. Often it's not well structured. Often mm -hmm. the, the connections between them is not very good. And um, that just creates a whole host of problems. So that was the original kind of problem space that I became interested in. And we started, you know, doing consulting with agencies to get closer to that problem space with the end goal always having been to build a software product. Mm -hmm. And the more we spent time, um, you know, helping agencies start to figure this out, the more we re realized that the basis of all of this is estimation, because that is where you are creating the assumptions that most of these operations functions are built on top of. And you're also creating the structure in which that data is, you know, being organized, which determines mm -hmm. what kind of questions you can and cannot answer about projects. Um, and that's why we really started to kind of narrow in on that because we had spent a long time trying to build technology to solve the problem without actually getting down to the root of like, why, why are we struggling to solve this problem? Why is, pe why are people's data 
that's so disorganized and incomplete and poorly organized and inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just led us to this estimation thing, which to today I realize is like, if you can't do that well, you can't actually scale your agency well, because you can't mm-hmm. predict and plan the things that you need to have forward visibility on in order to hire people at the right time, get them ramped up, make sure that they're not working crazy hours, make sure you're protecting mm-hmm. your margins. Like the best thing you can do for your agency and the people that work at it is get good at understanding the scope of work so that you can plan that going forward. I really like that. And I like that sort of, uh, for those of you who are watching the audio recording of this in Marcel's background is a copy of start with why by Simon Sinek. <laughs> uh, and I like that notion. You kind of alluded to it that, you know, you kind of started looking at the estimation problem uh, and then, you know, not a, how can we sort of estimate better or what is a good estimate, but why do estimates suck in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we uncovered a whole bunch of problems around that as well. You know, most agencies, when we ask them, like, how do you figure out what the scope of a project is? The the answers range from like bad to terrible. You know, very (laughs) few agencies that we run into were like, oh, we feel really good about how we do this. Like, we feel like it's, it's data driven, like we're confident in the numbers we're throwing out. And for most of them, it was like, we get all the most expensive, most senior people in the organization together in a room. And we spend thousands of dollars in potential billable time um, putting together an estimate and then we're constantly stuck in this dichotomy of like do we spend a bunch of time on this to make it accurate knowing that there's like a 60% chance we're not going to close the deal anyway or mm-hmm. do we just kind of like you know pull pull an estimate from a last project make a couple of tweaks and cross our fingers hoping this doesn't turn into a dumpster fire um, and none of those are really great answers for really fixing this problem no for sure and you mentioned about like all the spreadsheets and all the time spent and the sort of spectrum of bad to terrible in terms of estimation techniques and tactics uh like were you finding that a lot of folks are just kind of saying okay well let's just treat this like a net new project and think about how many hours it will take to do x or were some people or were a lot of people pulling from their historicals and just trying to make it work uh, but maybe sometimes failing Yeah, it kind of runs the gamut. I think that there are a lot of agencies that overestimate how unique all of their projects are. And so they do take this approach of Mm -hmm. like building every project as though it's like really bespoke. And I think what they're missing out on there is the opportunity to create efficiencies in what is actually a pretty expensive process and Mm -hmm. can be the reason that you lose a deal. If you if you need four days or six days to put together a a scope of work for a client, like that's uh, that that could be the reason that you lose that deal. And it's it's expensive, like objectively, that that requires a lot of time from people in your organization that should be working on earning you revenue. Um, Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is those that are trying to pull back uh, estimates from past projects. The mistake a lot of people make there is they don't actually close the loop on estimates versus actuals. So they might grab a proposal from a previous client, (laughs) but they're not actually going to reconcile like, was this accurate in the first place? And so um, if they're not doing that, of course, they're using what could be an inaccurate basis for their assumptions going forward. Um, And if they are trying to look at actuals and base their next estimate on that most of them struggle to do it with a volume of data that's actually going to give them like a a benefit in terms of Mm -hmm. making their estimate more accurate because it's just inefficient to create that feedback loop it's clunky it's happening in a spreadsheet it requires manual Mm -hmm. pulling of data and a lot of times the reason that that doesn't happen and this is one of the biggest things i spend my time on with agencies is because there is a disconnection between the way their estimates are structured from a data schema perspective and the way Mm -hmm. their time tracking is structured so when you go look at your time tracking records and you're like how many design hours do we spend on this project it's like okay well i have a task here for uh wireframing ui uh content outline and i have this thing over here for you know client this that and the other thing and but it's not tagged back to a a schema that maps to the estimate and so 
the reason you don't do it as often as you should, or the reason a lot of agencies struggle to do it at the volume that they should is because there's this huge overhead of having to reconcile their data in order to actually just get that question answered in the first place. And so there's too much friction. Like the way they've structured their data has introduced unnecessary friction into answering that question that they are tracking time for the purpose of answering in the first place. I had actually the question here, why doesn't everyone do this sort of data-driven estimation process? And I think you just answered it there because A and B don't really connect. They don't want to invest the time to actually, you know, put the puzzle pieces together. That actually ends up taking even more time and seems like even more fruitless. Uh, But really, again, coming back to the why isn't it working in the first place is usually because the way people create an estimate is different from the way people are actually tracking project metrics. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. What I found is that there's kind of two, you know, what we're really trying to do is create, I think, in the estimation process, this formula that we use for how we scope work, right? So we have inputs. Those inputs are generally things that we're asking the client for to try and get a sense of the complexity of the project. So it might be like, you know, how many web pages do you need on this um, on this website? And how much of the content have you already written? And, you know, like you're trying to figure out like how much complexity is there here? And then based on those inputs, you're trying to create some kind of relationship line between like, if there's X number of web pages, it's going to add this much additional effort. And then categorizing that by, you know, the way that you resource plan, which is generally on some kind of a rules basis. So like how much more design, how much more development, how much more copywriting strategy, et cetera, is mm-hmm. this going to require? Um, and there's two ways to build that line in a way that's actually accurate and reliable. The first is collecting enough data to get a sense of like, what does this actually look like? And what is the correlation between these inputs that we're collecting and effort? And then mm-hmm. the second, and this is one that a lot of people overlook, and this is where actually talking to people becomes really important. And I, you know, I don't want to be put in the box of being the person that thinks that like tracking time and looking at data is how you're going to solve this whole problem because it's not, is looking at the process. Because the reality is there's things that you're trying to predict that are probably just not that predictable because the process for how you do them is not very well defined. And so naturally, you're going to have this really huge distribution of data points on that graph. The, the, the spectrum is going to be too wide for you to get a reliable line. So what you want to try and do is collect a lot of data points and then squeeze them towards the middle by placing rails on like what is the possible variance of the amount of time and effort it's going to take to get this thing done by defining your processes. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg game, isn't it? Right. There's <laughs> unlimited processes for you to invest in in your agency. So how do you figure out which ones are the biggest opportunity are going to be worth, you know, the squeeze, so to speak? And the answer to that, in my opinion, is you look at the data to figure out where are you consistently blowing budgets, where are you consistently not, you know, predicting the effort of getting something done. Makes sense. I like that. Um, you had at one point walked me through a bit of a framework for estimation, like a bit of a cycle. Uh, yeah. It had various different stages. I wondered if maybe you could walk our listeners through that a little bit. So there's I did four that ex- steps. Exact experiment last uh, <laughs> last night. Sorry, there's go ahead. four steps. Um, and this is a framework that we've kind of called the agency profitability flywheel. So this is really at the core of the process that we use for consulting engagements and how we think about, you know, our product and how we think about improving profitability in the agency in the first place. And of course, the first step is getting good at estimation. That's the foundation, as I said before. So the first step in the flywheel is defining your process for how you estimate um, 
work inside of your agency and then also defining the structure of what those estimates look like because if that structure is changing all the time and if your process is changing all the time you have a moving target that the rest of these pieces that i'm going to talk about are trying to align to and you're just creating unnecessary complexity there so the first step is just like define what that process is and then standardize the format that an estimate comes out in and what's more important is not like i don't mean what font you use for the document but like the this the hierarchy of the data there's a client and then under clients there's projects and maybe inside of projects there's deliverables or phases and then within those you have like these standard kind of line items that you roll time estimates up to maybe it's roles maybe it's people you know however you want to do that for your agency doesn't matter but just structure it in a way that's consistent because the next step is then to measure actuals. So you have your estimate. Now you want to go and structure all the tooling that you use for tracking time and costs. You want to set those up so that they map back to the estimate. And this is a thing that seems so obvious. And it's like, why am I even talking about this? But like, uh, go audit your tooling and hold up an estimate next to your time tracking reports and tell me if they match up. If they do, congratulations. But most of the time when I talk to agencies, it's a thing that seems so obvious, but it's not happening. So that's the next step is to align your estimates to your time and cost tracking tooling. And what that does is it decreases the amount of work that it takes to actually check if your estimates are accurate or not. And you create a data feedback loop there. And now it doesn't take you an hour to answer the question of was this accurate or not? It takes you two minutes and you're more likely to do it. And now you can install a cadence that weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever the rate of change, you know, in your agency, whatever is appropriate for capturing, you know, relevant rate of change, set a cadence, go in a review. What did we estimate? what's actually happening, and you can start to see patterns of where the gaps are in the way that you estimate, where the consistencies or inconsistencies exist, and that's going to drive the next part of this framework. So this is kind of quantitative. It's very data. It's mm-hmm. very objective, right? That that should, as a leader in the organization, as a PM, as an operations person, give you data points to understand, like, where should I be investing my attention? Where are the opportunities? The second part of the framework is all about qualitative. So what are the people that I need to go talk to to figure out why this stuff is happening? Because the data is not going to be able to tell you that. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make, and it's the reason that their data set is a mess, is they try to answer every question with their data. And so they're trying to segment it down to like by task and then by subtask within the task. And and that's how you end up with a timesheet that's just like unreadable and unreconcilable. (laughs) So like, don't try to do that because you're not going to get good insight. Instead, Understand that it's like, okay, we've consistently been under uh, estimating project management by 20% on all of our, you know, e-commerce website design projects. So then you go and you sit down with the team and you go, hey guys, we've noticed this pattern. What do we think is happening here? Are we not estimating it properly? Is there some clunkiness in the handoff that's happening here? And you let the team kind of surface insight on why they think those things are happening. They'll surface insight on better ways to estimate. They'll surface insight on better ways to do this process and streamline it and make it more consistent. And the beautiful part about that is their ideas are coming to the surface. And then you can say, that's a great idea. I think that would be really valuable. Do you want to help us get that implemented? And you can actually start to recruit the team to get involved in creating the processes that are going to make the agency better and hopefully make their lives better and make their work more consistent and keep them, you know, getting home in time for dinner every night. Um, And you're not now having to just like dictate these processes, which I think is something that a lot of people struggle with inside of agencies. So the next two steps are meet with the team regularly to review what you've discovered from your data sets. So that's like meetings and reports. And then the fourth part of this is create a backlog of process improvements, updates, 
you know, maintenance that you can prioritize and implement. And that will in turn make your estimates more accurate. So it's a, it's a circle. It's like a circle. <laughs> <laughs> One might say it's a bit of a flywheel. <laughs> it, it is a flywheel. Exactly. Cause like what you're doing is you're doing exactly what I described earlier. When you go through this process, you're collecting the data points that allow you to create this relationship line of, you know, how, how do projects increase in terms of effort when, you know, the inputs that we're asking for in the discovery call look like this. And then on the back end, you're also looking at where can we improve our processes so that those data points start to get pushed towards the middle. And if you do this for just a couple of months, I promise you, you will identify a handful of processes that will dramatically smooth out, you know, the distribution of like how much effort and the risk of how much effort or time it might take to get things done. And you'll start to see things become way more consistent, way more quickly. And of course, where that's most important for the executive leadership or for the agency is people spend less time working overtime because the deadline is rarely elastic. And when you mm -hmm. underbid something that's costing people their evening and, and weekends. So that's the most important part. And the second thing is your profitability will go up because when, when you plan to make money, when you sold the work, you'll hopefully actually make money when you deliver the work. I like it. And I think that like, I feel like, this qualitative stage is where a lot of people are falling down. I think you mentioned it earlier, right? Some people just expect yeah. the data to answer all the questions. Maybe they actually get too granular and then the timesheet and the estimate is so granular that nothing is similar, you know, in the past or in the future in terms of projects. Um, but I really want to dive into this sort of qualitative stage because I think folks will be interested in it. Um, you mentioned getting together regularly and talking about, you know, estimates and, you know, who's over, who's under, and then talking about the reasons why. Would you say that that's like, uh, like everybody together? Do you get people of a certain like craft or discipline together? Is it just that line item that went over or under that you want to analyze and get those people together? What does that, what does that meeting look like? Who's there and, 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 and how do we start talking about it? Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have a cut and dry answer for you because we're dealing with human beings. And a lot of this is going to depend on what your organization looks like. So if you have, you know, like pods inside of your agency that work with, you know, a specific group of projects, and you might run this at the pod level, if you have more vertical disciplines, then you might run it, you know, at that level where you have the designers sit down and talk about their process. And it really just de depends on how your organization is structured and what your delivery processes look like. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's important to just protect this time and make sure that it's happening consistently. Mm. And the two ways that we typically see this done is number one, project retros, which you know, most people are familiar with those at the end of a project, you schedule some time, you get everybody that worked on the project in a room and you talk about, you know, here's what happened. This is what went mm -hmm. good. This is what didn't go the way we thought it was going to, you know, what can we learn from this? And, you know, you use that to inform the process backlog. The other way to do this, and I kind of prefer this um, only because it's a little bit easier to protect the time is I call these performance um, project performance meetings. And we do these usually biweekly or monthly um, just depends again on like, what is the rate of change in your agency? Do you have big projects that take a long time to like really kind of move? Or do you have a lot of smaller projects that change quickly? That's going to determine like how often you want to do these. Um, mm -hmm. And with those, you're, you're going to define like a group of people, a cross-functional kind of section of the agency. You're going to bring them together and you're just going to have a list of all the projects, the ones that were completed, the ones that are kind of ongoing. And you can use simple cost performance indexing to get a sense of like, are we on track for this or not? And then you're just kind of looking at the outliers, the ones that are way better than we expected. And like, I think not enough people focus on that stuff, but like there's gold in there of this project was super efficient. Like, what did we do here that we can mm -hmm. apply to other projects? And people are like, oh, well, you know, like 
we we had all the designers work on this one phase you know at the same time and we ended up being able to bang it out in a day as opposed to like it usually takes us a week to do it or we did the handoff differently here and like it was super efficient so like look at the outliers in terms of what went super well what was super efficient and then also look at the outliers in terms of like what's not going the way you expect um and it's just a conversation with the team about like, why do we think these things are happening? Um, and what's important here is we want to focus on the process, not the people. And we just want to like be inquisitive and not, you know, attack people. Cause that's one of the best ways to just basically get people to like write these meetings off, not want to show up right. and not engage in them <laughs> is if we show up and we're just like, Hey, Galen, you messed up, man. And you spent twice as much PM time on this. Like, that's not a productive way to have that discussion. It's like, right, Hey, right. it looks like, you know, our assumptions about how much PM time it was going to take for this project, um, didn't line up with what happened. Why do we think that happened? You know, what went differently than what we expected? And that's the way to mm-hmm. facilitate that conversation. And I think that's a really important lens. I mean, you mentioned project retros and I see the value in that for sure, but I love the idea of you know, having this sort of maybe process subcommittee across projects, looking at everything that's happening now, making tweaks in real time, but also like it's, it's that comparative side of things, um, that helps people understand what can be compared across their projects, um, and have that discussion of, oh yeah, you know, like, it's taking longer because it's really complex or, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. So I spend more time, you know, communicating. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that, uh, that, that sort of jumped out at me, you mentioned earlier, okay. Yeah. Getting like some PMs together talking about why PM time always goes over. Um, and then there's this question that, uh, you know, we have in the, in the circles that I travel in, which is, you know, does everyone see the value of what a project manager is doing? Uh, and then I think that actually starts to tip it because I've seen, I've talked to a lot of folks in agencies that are like, okay, yeah, like project management is like tax. It's like a percentage that you just throw on top, uh, regardless of what kind of project it is. Uh, and then everyone's like, oh, why, why did it go over? Or, you know, people who are paying for it are like, well, why do I have to pay for this big chunk of project management time? I don't see the value. But I love that notion of getting together and understanding where PMs are spending their time, how they're adding value, and then maybe reflecting that back. So maybe that percentage should be higher because they're delivering more value. And that's also how you can sell it, which is also how you're going to estimate it because you know that there's additional value on top of what most folks, you know, typically thought a project manager would be doing on a project like that is actually maybe a misconception. So I think that's really cool. And and since we're on the digital project manager focused show, I think it it is important to riff on this just a little bit because the outcomes that I've seen come out of that discussion a lot are one of two things. It's to your point, it's like actually helping uh, everyone understand the value that the project management team is bringing. Um, And then the other one is getting an understanding of like where all the shortcomings are in the rest of the organization that are holding the project manager back from doing their job. Um, And I think uh, Ben and I had a great discussion on our podcast about Mm -hmm. this, where we asked the question, like, what is the central responsibility of a project manager? Because like, Mm -hmm. I think everybody listening to this knows, like, project manager is one of those job titles that it's like, you have no idea what that means at one agency versus another, <laughs> right? It's like you could be doing basically sales, you could be doing basically operations, you could essentially be a designer or a developer or like doing like the spectrum of where you're going to be pulled is different in every organization based on how mature they are. And based on the other thing is like where the weakness in the inputs are. And what we agreed on was the central responsibility outside of all of those kind of auxiliary things that you get pulled into as a PM is building and maintaining the project plan. 
And that's super valuable because it tells everybody, the team, the executive leadership team, the client, like where things are at. It's the source of truth for everyone to be informed on what they should be doing, what the focus is, what the progress is, like where the project is. It's so essential. And all of your operation systems are built on top of that forecasting, resource planning, all that stuff. So like the project plan is the central responsibility. It's super valuable to everyone that touches the product project, all the stakeholders. And generally as a PM, you're going to get pulled in whatever direction is the weakest in terms of the inputs that you need to put that project plan together. So if sales is doing a terrible job of scoping, you're probably going to end up spending a lot of time with the sales team helping them scope projects. If the delivery team is doing a terrible job of updating you on project status, you're probably going to spend most of your time chasing down timesheets and trying to get updates from the team. If this client is doing a terrible job of giving you the information that you need to try and like actually get the team going and get them unblocked and get revisions back, you're probably going to spend most of your time on account management. So um, that could be a big insight is just realizing like, okay, we're spending all this time over here because we actually don't have a great process for collecting, you know, these important things from the clients. And that informs process improvements that hopefully allow you as a project manager to kind of keep coming back to that central thing, which is creating and maintaining your project plan and making sure that you have all the inputs and the correct tooling and the correct process for getting the output. Um, that everybody needs and that you need to do that job effectively. I like that. That's why process is so important so that you can actually, process should kind of run itself so that you could be left to do your job as a project manager uh, and add value in other areas. Um, I I, I totally support that. I love that. Um, (laughs) I I think, I mean, I want to get into the qualitative stuff in just a bit, but I think even just to take a half step back, um, the thing that I get asked a lot is, uh, well, maybe just told a lot is, okay, my, my project is very different. I do things my own way. Like, and it's never going to be the same as somebody else's project. And, you know, I've got my own style and everything's always different. This is, it's probably pointless to try and use historical, historical data to do anything or to try and unify processes because the fact of the matter is that every project is unique. How do you defend against that? What is, what is your, what is your argument against that? It's just not true. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> I think like you, you have to think about, um, you have to separate the creative from the process. And the reality is that every creative has a process. And um, I think, honestly, one of the things that separates the mature creatives from the ones that are still kind of um, figuring themselves out as creatives is that the mature ones acknowledge that they have a process. As ridiculous as their process might be, as weird as it might be, like your process might be to, you know, smoke a joint and go for a run in Central Park. (laughs) That's still a process if you do it every time or if you do it most of the time. Like. And so you have a process and it might be very high level. It might be very loose, but there is one there and defining kind of at a, even at a very high level, what those are, even if it's just like the order of the things that you think about and start to wireframe and start to design, like those things matter and they make up 80% of the, the patterns in the way that the data shakes out. And we know this from looking at the data from hundreds of agencies even the ones that say like everything we do is totally bespoke. It's like, well, maybe that's true, but like your, your process for figuring out like how you're going to do these things is still relatively consistent. Um, and then you generally know what signals you're looking for in the discovery process to figure out like how much complexity is going to exist in each of those steps in your process. Um, mm. And you can generally figure those things out by talking to the clients and trying to extract, you know, what they do or don't know or what they do or don't expect from the deliverable. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question, but it's like, it's just, 
It's not true. Even if every design is different, the process for getting there probably isn't unique every single time. Yeah, and I, I fully agree with that. Um, and it's something that we've kind of come across, uh, especially in digital, like on, on the web. Everyone thought, that, you know, their website was so unique. I mean, back in the days of flash-driven websites, everything was like a movie, uh, and everything was very different. And actually, how it got massaged down, and, and like now, like browsing the web is like it's a vernacular, it's a language, it's it's pattern-driven. It is, you know, uh, it, it is componentized in such a way that it all actually supports process and actually the there is benefit although i mean and i was i was that maverick pm who was like ah, i just do things my way and that's my style and i'm not going to do what everyone did and until i realized the value of actually doing things consistently and the same way and learning from one another and then to your point you know going home on time because i'm not like trying to make up my own method as i go or be special or be this unique snowflake that i can do what all my peers are doing so that we're this sort of you know, platoon of people doing the same thing, creating the same level of quality and also being able to say, oh yeah, this is how much time it's going to take because I know that's how much time it's taken on average historically across my peers to, to do this job uh, at this level of complexity. And I can sort of rest my hat on that, know that we're getting better as an organization and yeah, have, have better work-life balance. So I think that's the thing that sort of tipped it for me. Yeah. And, and I think I want to just dispel one final myth around this, which is, and I think you get a lot of this, again, from the creative community is that there's a sense that process is going to somehow um, inhibit their creativity, or it's going to, mm-hmm. you know, diminish the quality of the work. And what we found is that the, the opposite is actually true. Like, there certainly is a point where adding too much process will restrict, you know, the creativity and, and the quality of the work. But having a little bit there actually dramatically improves it, because it gives you a framework to operate in. And it starts to, to your point, start to protect the consistency of the quality that you're producing for your client. And at the end of the day, it's not not what is most important, like they're coming to you buying an mm-hmm. outcome, you're generally selling them on like, we are going to get you this outcome. And part of that conversation is because we've done it before. And you should be able to describe why you're able to consistently <laughs> deliver that outcome. Um, and so like just having even again, if it's very high level, having a process that you go through as a creative to get into that space where you're doing great work. Um, you know, understanding that that's part of it is important. And I think it can actually elevate your creative work and make you a more reliable and consistent, you know, creative that can produce that work uh, the way that you want to every time and doesn't find you, uh, doesn't leave you in a place where you're just like finding these fleeting moments of creativity and needing to rely on those in order to do work for clients, because that's not a business model. um, And it's risky. And it's to your point, it's going to put you in a position where you're probably going to burn yourself out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Having that anchoring workflow so that you're not just kind of hoping for that inspiration every time you get paid to do a job. That's right. I like that. Uh, I want to dive into some of the qualitative sort of, I guess, data points. You mentioned some things, you know, like complexity. You mentioned things like, okay, well, you know, they, they had really demanding stakeholders or, you know, maybe the sales team needed more education on how to, add, you know, how to sell this product. Or, you know, there's these je ne sais quoi's for all of these projects that a lot of folks will be like, well, you know, it's it's not that easy. Sometimes you have, you know, a, a client that's, you know, a bit of a pain to manage. Uh, how, how do you sort of turn that uh, or how do you apply a data lens to some of that qualitative aspect of how projects go in real life. 
Yeah. So again, I think it's a, it's a question of creating um, a bit of separation between how you're going to answer those questions and understanding like where it makes sense to tool that up in the data and where it makes sense to just continue to rely on, you know, more of a qualitative approach conversations with the team in order to get to like the root root cause of what's going on. Um, but certainly like what is feasible from a data perspective is kind of defining a couple of standard um I guess drivers that influence the complexity of work um, within your your phases or you know within a project. So if you have this mm-hmm. kind of standard list of like three or four things that you're asking for or that you're kind of uncovering in the discovery process that you know have a dramatic impact on a project, then you can you know start to create whether it's a naming convention in the project mm-hmm. or if it's you know some kind of other way that you define that against the project you can start to create sets of projects that are similar based on that criteria and kind of where they rank and then the final piece is just kind of using contingency for all the other little things that just doesn't make sense to track and that mm-hmm. probably aren't impacting um, the scope of work like as much as you think it is uh, right. on, in the grand scheme of things when you actually look at the data normalized at, at high volume. Um, but that's where you can just kind of be like, well, this client feels like they're kind of a pain in the ass. So let's just tack on an extra 10% douchebag tax for this client. And hopefully, you know, that'll make up for the extra emails we're gonna have to send uh, to keep them in line. Um, and then on the back end of that, it's like, again, being consistent about having conversations with your team about mm-hmm. these things is super, super important. And uh, the pushback I get on this a lot is like, that always gets bulldozed by client work. And my answer to that is it's because your client work isn't happening in the amount of time that you thought it was going to. And so you have to start cannibalizing time in the calendar within work hours before you start cannibalizing time outside of work hours. And it's like, this is just a, it's another reason you need to start doing it (laughs) and do everything you can to protect it Um, and start with the data. And hopefully that will improve things enough that you can start to find the time to actually have these conversations. But like the reason it's not happening is because it needs to be happening. You know what I mean? I like that. Like the cannibalizing that time is the symptom that tells you that you need to fix the process. Yeah. Which, which is like kind of a crappy answer, right? Cause it's like, that's not a solution, but uh, it's the reality of kind of where you are as an agency. If you schedule these meetings, these retros, and they're always getting bulldozed, it's like, well, that's because if you plan to have that time and then you don't have it anymore, it's because the things that you plan for project wise are not happening the way that you expect them to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this, like, especially in agency world, there's this urgency, and it's very difficult to get anyone to sort of take their foot off the gas for a bit, even if they'll benefit from pausing, taking a step back, going, okay, what's actually happening here, and let's fix the root of the problem before we continue, because there's just this rapid pace, high pressure sort of culture and environment to just keep going and keep smashing through things and catching up, uh, and then finding the next, you know, the next job. Um, And really, a lot of the sort of just anxiety and fervor and just chaos of it all could probably be just, you know, gently pushed back a little bit by, you know, sitting down and looking at the process and how it can actually be improved. So I want to riff on this just a little bit because it's, it's one of the big reasons that I've gone deep into this problem. Um, And it's something that has driven me crazy about this industry for a long time, which is like, I think for a long time working at an agency is you kind of know that it's going to be, 
hell, right? You're going to work <laughs> long hours. You're going to, you know, it's going to be crazy. You're going to live on coffee and cigarettes and it, it, like, <laughs> it's just going to be terrible. Um, but you're going to cut your teeth. You're going to get to work with cool brands. And then eventually you'll mm-hmm. go like <laughs> work for a brand that allows you to go home at five and pays you twice yes. as much as you got paid at your agency. Um, and like that just doesn't actually have to be true. I think that that's, that's the, the story that a lot of people tell themselves because that's how it's been in the industry. And I think there's a lot of bad players that their model was, I'm going to let my employees subsidize my poor management and poor scoping of projects. And Mm -hmm. that's what ends up happening. You work 70 hours a week and that's actually helping your agency owners like, and the people running the agency make up for the fact that they are not actually designing and running their business in a way that's profitable. The reality is Mm -hmm. you should be able to run a highly profitable business, 25, 30% net profit margins at the end of the year on 65% utilization, 65%. That should be your annual net target and you should have no problem being profitable at that level of utilization. That means that like 35% of your team's time is not spent doing work for clients. Imagine that for a moment. And this is within a 40 hour work week, right? Normal hours, you should be able to be profitable. So like if you're listening to this and you're more on the executive leadership side or you're a PM who's like maybe having this discussion, like those, that's the reality. Those are the numbers. You go model it. You should be able to achieve that. There is no reason why you have to get your team to work 70, 80% utilization to have a profit. That just means that you're not doing things right. And again, all that generally comes back to the starting point is you're not scoping projects. Well, you're not, you're not planning for that. And so you're just kind of letting your team eat that cost instead of you absorbing as an owner. And that drives me crazy. And it's the bigger reason why I want to solve this estimation process. Cause like I'm sick and tired of people mm. believing that it's okay to, you know, work their employees to death and cannibalize mm. their whole personal life because that's just the way this industry is. Cause it's not true. I really love that actually. And I think that's a really useful perspective because I know from past experience, uh, sorry, sort of, being at a leadership level at an agency in the process of trying to make the organization attractive to financiers and make it sort of ripe for acquisition. One of the one of the metrics actually that we looked at was utilization and we were like more at the 80% and that was a good thing. It was like, oh, we're consistently at 80% utilization. In other words, our workforce is being sort of mobilized towards client work and, and nobody's quote unquote wasting time, you know, sitting on their hands. Whereas the opposite is, is, is actually probably more valuable, which is that, hey, listen, we're able to put 35% of our time into thinking about how can we work better and more efficiently and more consistently and deliver a higher quality. And then the 65% of the time, we're doing that thing and we're doing it really well. And we're, we're, we're working at a margin that yeah. is still like very, uh, like very healthy in terms of profitability. And this is the thing that I'll riff on again. This is an old world metric that's romanticized today, but is completely like the wrong metric to be tracking now. If you are a time and materials, pure time and materials agency, and you bill for every hour that your team works, then yes, utilization is your most important metric and you want it to be as high as possible, you know, without burning your team out. But the reality is most shops are not time and materials anymore. And so just focusing on utilization is the wrong call because if you're not looking at average billable rate or some kind of earning efficiency metric, whether it's average billable rate or gross margin, 
margin or contribution margin next to that, then mm-hmm. yeah, maybe your team's working 80% of the time on client work, but maybe that extra 15 or 20% of the time that they're spending is just over servicing the client and it's driving down your actual efficiency. And mm-hmm. so um, I think acquirers are becoming more savvy to that now that they're seeing the business models changing. Most people are charging on value or flat rates. And so utilization cannot be the only metric that you look at because it doesn't mm-hmm. tell the whole story. Um, in fact, it can obfuscate and j- draw your attention away from the fact that you're actually just throwing human beings at the problem instead of fixing the fact that you're not efficient at getting your revenue earned in, in the agency. For sure. No, efficiency is huge. There is actually, in a time and materials world, there is no motivation to actually be more efficient because you want the billable hours. You want to, you know, you want that, you want to hit your utilization target. You're not going to spend less time on something. You're going to spend more time on something. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's very interesting. I love that. Um, Oh, so many other questions bubbling in my head. But I think uh, coming back to sort of process, right, and efficiency and, and talking about, you know, uh, how things are going or have gone in a project and then talking across projects. Uh, and then you mentioned it's like, yes, this, this group or there needs to be champions of process to actually prioritize what processes to look at and improve and then roll out. And then in rolling it out, I think the only way this really sort of works is if people actually do it, right? The way that the yep. process is meant to be. Um, and I don't know if, you know, if the people you talk to and the people you work with, you talk about like, like how you reinforce adherence. How do you sort of make sure that people follow the process once it's been overhauled? Yeah, I mean, this kind of comes back to organizational change 101. And, you know, like you you can go to the most like corporate, (laughs) like staunchy information on this, and it's all going to tell you the same thing is like your team has to be bought in to the process if you expect them to follow it and and reinforce it and actually be invested in making sure that their peers are following it and they have a vested interest in making sure that it's improving. And the Mm -hmm. only way to do that is to get them involved in the process of ideating and creating these processes early on because that's where they develop a visceral relationship with this is how this process or lack thereof impacts me and my job and it impacts my ability to do my best work it impacts my ability to get things done efficiently it impacts my ability to get home on time at five o'clock you know like and when they are drawing the line, and this is what should be happening in those kind of project performance meetings is like, hey, you know, Galen, really sorry, you, you worked a slammer, you worked over the weekend to get this done because we, we misscoped this thing. Like, you're like, okay, that's how this is impacting me. And then we have the conversation about how do we solve that? And you say, mm-hmm. well, I think we need to change the way we do our handoff between design and dev because it's creating problems. Now, mm-hmm. you like, you understand viscerally, like, this is how I get my weekends back. And now you're motivated to make sure that that process is implemented, that you follow it and that you get other people to follow it. And I don't have to be the bad guy as the PM anymore. And I think that's another unfortunate thing about this role (laughs) is often you're just kind of put in that position where you have to be the person that's holding everyone accountable to the process. Well, in in this case, you don't really have to be that person anymore, or you can just be a facilitator of a conversation about like, hey, how do you think this is impacting your peers when you don't follow this process? We had this discussion, you know, and it's not just like follow the process because I said so. Uh, which unfortunately, like when you're taking more of a top-down approach to process, ends up being the case. So um, yeah, this is just change management 101. Get the team involved. Mm-hmm. And the way that you do that is you get them connected to the the facts, which is in the data. 
mm-hmm. and then the emotional side of it, which is how it's impacting them and their work and how much fun they're having on projects and how much time it's taking them. And then having them actually champion the ideas that are going to make that better. And honestly, no one's really better qualified to do that than the people doing the work, right? So mm-hmm. um, that's another great way to remove bottlenecks at the executive level when it comes to maintaining process and creating accountability around it as well. I like that. A little bit. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about tools versus techniques. Um, so PMs, we love tools. Yes. <laughs> but I think, I think for me, the, the, the question is, uh, and maybe this is an obvious one, but does an organization like need a software tool to gather this data to produce estimates and also like do time tracking? Like, is there sort of kind of a smoking gun that everyone should be looking for to solve all their problems? Maybe I'm answering this question myself. Uh, but like, you know, uh, we even talked about spreadsheets and, and, and time tracking and just having, you know, the estimation process match time tracking. Like, can an organization do this without having a new tool? Is it more of a mindset and a framework or does the data get a bit overwhelming? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, you can do it um, without a tool. And the most important way to make that possible is being really, really deliberate about the way you structure your data so that when you pull a time tracking report and you pull an estimate and you put them up next to each other, you don't have to do a bunch of work to make that that comparison actually makes sense. Like that will help speed this up and probably get you to a point where you can do a lot of this stuff manually, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't change the fact that as you know, you know, creating that feedback loop is cumbersome. It's probably going to require you to build spreadsheets, export things, import them, you know, tidy things up, um, create visualizations and, um, that any amount of resistance that you place on that when you're already in a process that feels kind of arduous and already feels like, you know, a big expense in the sales process, which is creating a Mm -hmm. quote and where there's time pressure means you're likely not going to do it or not do it often enough. And so, you know, this is part of the reason we created Parakeeto. Um, and to my knowledge, it's the only tool that really closes that loop. And I think that's what we do, you know, really differently than everybody else between Mm -hmm. what you estimate and what actually happened and allows you to put all of that data where you're creating the estimate so that as you change your estimate for how many project management hours um, you think it's going to take on this project on that same graph that same visualization you can see all the other projects that were similar Hmm. and how much time it took for project management on those as well as that line i described earlier of what is the relationship between budget and effort and how does that change over time for your agency so you know we created this to make that as frictionless as possible so that it's easy for you and your team to actually do it um, as opposed to having to rely on like your your process of doing it manually, which even when you have your data structured really, really well, is still going to be cumbersome. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, you and I were talking about sort of the, the operations layer and, and, you know, maybe PMs aren't always the best people to sort of decide how to structure a time card or decide on some of these processes um, for estimation. But then also there's this process of like pulling all the data together. Uh, and if you're doing it manually, then that's a lot of effort. I'm like, I'm just picturing someone going through every time card of every project and trying to sort of bring it into this, you know, Google sheet and hoping for the best. <laughs> it's just yeah. at a certain scale, I think it gets, um, it gets a little bit too complicated to actually reap the benefits of having, you know, and I'm, I'm just picturing that visual of like, okay, well, yeah, you're estimating this for that. Well, here's, you know, Bill's project and here's, you know, Jeremy's project and here's Sally's project. Um, and they did the same sort of thing. And you're like, oh, but, you know, like, 
this is pretty complex. It's more like this project. And even that, even if it's not, you know, telling you the answer, it's giving you like really solid guidance based on what has actually happened in the past to, you know, actually make good decisions. Yeah, hundred percent. And the thing that I'll say is like our tool, just like every other tool, just like your time tracking tool, your project management tool, it's only going to be as helpful as your data structure. So mm-hmm. you've got to start there. Start with defining the data structures that are going to be able to answer the questions that you need, and then go look at tools that map to that, um, not the other way around. I think that's the mistake that you know everybody makes <laughs> in everything that they do is they look to the tool to solve <laughs> right. the problem. But like the, the problem has right. to start right. with the process and the structure and, and get that um, focused in first. And this is like the thing that we spend most of our time uh, consulting on at the beginning of an engagement is just like really going deep into data structures and mapping that out. Um, Cause without that, we, we can't really build anything else. We can't build a, a great process. We can't build great reports um, and we can't build great uh, feedback loops with the team because the foundation just isn't there. I like that. I think you probably answered my next question, which is, you know, if, if someone wanted to start doing this, uh, and start building a culture of data-driven estimation, uh, you know, what's the first thing that they ought to do? Well, they should go and uh, opt in for our agency profitability toolkit, where I have spreadsheets and frameworks and resources and videos walking you through each step of the flywheel. I have worksheets, you know, to help you kind of go through the same audit process that we do with our consulting clients and kind of go through this process on your own. So that's what I would honestly, (laughs) you know, it's a little self-serving, but that's what I would (laughs) encourage you to do. Um, You know, there's five videos that you can kind of go through and watch to get real clarity on how all these pieces fit together. And then there's you, we kind of go deep into each section and provide some resources for you to actually implement those things. So, um, but the, the first step in that is, again, it's that estimation, defining that, how you do it, what the structure looks like, and then going and auditing your tools and making sure that that the way you structure your data in their maps, um, you start there, that's 80% of the upside. Um, and you'll start, you'll, you'll find that you'll be able to answer questions way more easily. You'll have more insight and you'll, it'll become very clear very quickly where you need to go improve a process or change something to really close the gaps that are probably creating most of the discomfort, most of the unpredictability in the agency. It, it probably comes down to just a handful of things that are going to give you the high return. That's very cool. And for our members listening, I will include a link to that when I post this on our forum. Uh, and I'll also, I'll put a link as well in the, in the podcast description for folks. Um, cause I know we talked about the flywheel. Listen, Marcel, these are all really valuable insights. I think we had a really good conversation, uh, today. And I think the thing that really resonated with me, uh, because it's been my past, which is that, you know, agency life doesn't have to be hell. <laughs> and I think like that really resonated with me is that like, yeah, we cut our teeth in this high pressure environment so that we can go like retire onto client side. But actually the goal shouldn't be that the goal should be to be more efficient, to have that work life balance. And when we're talking about process improvements, it's not about top down. You must do this thing. You must follow this checklist. You are a robot now. It's actually bottom up. Like, actually, I want to have time to like actually eat lunch, like have a lunch break, uh, and, 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 and catch the regular bus and, and not have to Uber home at night, uh, to see my family, you know, before they go to sleep. <laughs> and I mean the adults too, right? Um, yeah. yeah so I think it's like, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good motivator for anybody working in any environment where you have to estimate project work, uh, to just kind of, return back to that sanity and not accept that it's going to be something that's going to be crazy and that estimates are never accurate and that there's always going to be overtime. Um, it's actually not necessarily even that um, yeah. it, we can get there. And actually 
I'm just reminded of one capping question that I have. So we've been talking about sort of, you know, data-driven estimation. I'm really glad we dug in on the qualitative side. But just for, you know, everybody who's producing an estimate and agency owners and leadership teams, like, how how accurate can we get using some of these processes? Like, are we talking about, you know, like just getting a bit closer to being accurate or how accurate have you been able to get some of your clients to be at estimating? Yeah, there's a lot of variability around this because, of course, it comes down to what type of things are you doing? Like if you're building custom software products, <laughs> I mean, you, you should just go time and materials, if I'm being honest. Like those things are just inherently hard to estimate. Um, that's the like one of the very few examples where I would agree that it's like every project really is different. Um, mm-hmm. That's only because I know enough about software to know that it's just it's ridiculously hard to figure like to predict. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, on the other end of that, if you have like highly productized services that are like exactly the same every single time we've been able to get people into single digit margins of error um and most of those come down to like it's newer people on the team that aren't trained or they didn't follow the sop and that's why there was like a variance here um but like i would say that if you run more of like a digital agency that with a foundation in web uh, design development your objective should be to get within fairly consistently within a 10 percent margin of error so what you actually track versus what was estimated is within 10 percent. if you can kind of get there then that's plenty good that's plenty reliable enough for you to build all your operation systems on um, make sure that your people get home consistently on time make sure you're consistently profitable if you can start to close in on that 10 percent, that really should kind of be the objective that's awesome that's amazing that's really cool i know so many people who would be like oh i'd be so thrilled if my estimate came anywhere anywhere close to that so there yeah. you go I'll link, i'm sure uh, you have some i'm sure you have some but the problem is it's not most of them right some of them are 50 percent over under some of them are 30 percent over under and then every once in a while you get one that's accurate and it's maybe just a fluke um but yeah it's mm-hmm. it's making that consistency is uh is really the objective for sure yeah i love that very cool awesome marcel Thanks for joining us today. I think it was a really good conversation. I hope our listeners have learned a lot. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, just the flywheel in general, the process. I think I think that's really interesting for anybody. Uh, but I really love the notion of Parakeeto. It's something that really appeals to me as someone who's done many, many, many estimates, both on the project management side and on the sales side. Uh, so I, I really love what you're doing. Uh, and thanks again for, for being here with us on the show. It's my pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'm looking forward to meeting, um, hopefully, lots of you uh, inside the Digital Project Manager network. Awesome, for sure. Yeah, and maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll post this uh, in the forum. I'll get you in there, Marcel, and you can answer questions for folks. We'll have a little dialogue about it. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm even happy to do an AMA, um, you know, answer questions in the chat. And if you're listening to this, uh, you know, just reach out. I'm, I love nerding out about agency stuff in case you haven't noticed. It's one of my favorite things to do. So if you have nerdy questions, uh, if you want to dig into it, uh, yeah, definitely leave a comment uh, inside the DPM group and I'll, I'll chime in. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. All right, folks, so what do you think? What hacks, tips, and tricks do you have for making project data usable for future estimates? What works for you? What hasn't worked for you? Tell us a story. Have you ever had data-driven estimate that was just way off? Or maybe a ballpark estimate that just was spot on? Tell us in the comments below. And if you want to learn more and get ahead in your work, come and join our tribe with DPM membership. Head over to thedigitalprojectmanager.com slash membership to get access to our experts forum, mastermind mentorship groups, our library of mini courses, our live mentorship sessions, our Ask Me Anything sessions with a variety of experts, hopefully Marcel in the future, ebooks, templates, and more. And if you like what you heard today, 
please subscribe and stay in touch on thedigitalprojectmanager.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.